Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Entertainment of Excellence, the podcast where we talk about films, TV, all of it. Hi, I'm Ollie. I'm Tom. And I'm Ben. And today we're talking about the 1968 film, 2001 The Space Odyssey. This will contain spoilers. Uh, so, 2001 is a year. It's, it's kind of got like three sections. This, this is the plot summary. So, the first, like, about 20 minutes is the dawn of man. So, it's kind of like the moment when the apes that evolved into humans learned to use tools. That's like a big thing. And also, at the same time, a monolith appears in the area. Um, then the second section it deals with uh, he's like a politician of some kind has gone to a moon base because a monolith has also appeared on the moon, uh, and it seems to have changed like the magnetic field. That's kind of the only thing you learn about it in that section and then the final section which is the longest one is a mission to Jupiter with the uh with a crew of two people that are awake, three people that are asleep, and there's the HAL nine thousand, which famously you know uh get gets a bit evil and then kills the three people that are sleeping and ends up sending one of the awake people into shooting off into space. Uh, and then the final one, David Bowman manages to shut down HAL 9000 uh, and then gets to Jupiter where the last section happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess we'll talk about the last section I don't, later. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, first off... Oh. I, I see what you yeah. mean about David Bowman sounding a bit like David Bowie. Yeah. A weird, funny coincidence. <laughs> it's a bit spooky. I don't, like... I don't know if it... Oh, he, oh, he was active before this. It's just because he did Space Oddity in, like, 1968 as well. Maybe you just saw the movie and was like, ooh, that sounds like my name. I'm going to write a song about it. Also possible. <laughs> um, so, start off with the, the first section. Yeah. Yeah. This, I was kind of surprised because I assumed it was like 30 seconds long. <laughs> yeah, it, it went I, on a lot. I've only there. seen like the cliff of the monkeys just going around the monolith, but <clears throat> it was actually 20 minutes. Oh, <clears throat> sorry. I'm getting a sore throat, I guess. Um, but at first I was like, is this going to be a bit boring? <laughs> well, not the opening shot. The opening shot is really good with the, the famous music and then the timpanies going boom, 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 boom. With the, uh, it's like the sun, moon and earth are all aligned. That looks really good. Um, and then, so at first I was kind of bored by the monkeys, but weirdly when it got to the bit where one of them picks up one of the bones and like uses it as a kind of hammer or club, that, that like just cinematic moment manages to be quite powerful somehow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's able to, that ape's called Moon Watcher, it's able to like have quite a bit of development with just those apes uh, without obviously any dialogue and it's able to like convey quite a bit about the impact that the monolith's having on these apes and sort of the way that it's I know that um, 
as it goes on, the monolith is kind of uh, kind of symbolizing the key moments in evolution almost, and that's definitely sort of a catalyst in the um, like the way that this because before the monolith appears, they all seem to kind of be a big community, but afterwards, there's definitely kind of that rift appears in the sense of violence that begins to emerge, which I think is really like one of the most impactful moments I think in the film and one of the most famous transitions. It did look a little bit clunky, but I mean, that's sort of what you have to expect from 1968. But when he throws up the bone and then that spins around and transitions into like the satellite sort of thing. So it's like the two, it's like sort of the progression of uh, weapons, I guess, being used and like that parallel being drawn Mm. between the two like sections of the film yeah mm-hmm. um i think the uh, what do you think of like this the suits because it's kind of getting a bit aged now i think the monkey costumes see the thing is like most of the film i thought has aged like really well and like the special effects still look like mm. really incredible today but like yeah yeah the monkey costumes are a bit are a bit a bit 60s <laughs> yeah which is very sad but the rest of it is great and you get the first shot which comes up repeatedly of like from the bottom of the monolith looking up as the sun kind of goes over the top of it which mm. I assume means something. <laughs> yeah. And I, um, I think it's, it's quite interesting that he decided to start, you know, if you're sitting down to watch a film called A Space Odyssey, you're probably not expecting it to start with something like this, but I think it is quite, I guess, I mean, it's a bit, amb- he deliberately leaves it a bit ambiguous to what the themes are. I'm sure we'll sort of come on to that, but I do definitely think that they, what he sort of sets up in this opening is kind of consistent with what comes later on, but it's obviously in a very different setting. Yeah, well, I think this sets up like one of the themes as being evolution or just change in general, uh, adapting to what occurs and then kind of, I think including the monolith is like, how does it relate to the relationship with the universe in general? Yeah, and kind of that idea of the unknown with the monolith, and I think it's when we come on to like the second section, um, that's when they kind of are trying to you, you see that kind of arrogance from them, and they're trying to sort of conquer the monolith almost, and they you see that sort of initial hesitation, but then they start like taking pictures and sort of grow complacent, and that's when the monolith kind of strikes out. So. But in this, it's more kind of that fear of the unknown, which I think comes up a lot in the rest of the film. Yeah. I think, like, throughout the film, the monolith is... It's interesting how, like, at the start, it appears to, like, the the pre-humans, and they have no clue what it is, and they don't know how to react to it and then it's shown like twice more in the movie and uh, each time in the different segment like on the moon base obviously technology's advanced so much but people still don't know what it is and I'm too tired to think of a proper analysis of that but I just think that's kind of cool yeah Uh, if we're moving on, I'll mention, I guess, at the end of this section, um, the kind of bone is thrown into the air uh, and it spins, and then it cuts to uh, it's a satellite, isn't it? And it uh, which um, is, I think it's, well, it's an orbiting satellite, which then, yeah. 
Well, I've watched um, quite a bit of behind the scenes, and apparently, um, a lot of because it's quite interesting to hear about like how Kubrick approached the writing of this because he he wrote it kind of in conjunction with Arthur C. Clarke writing the novel, um, and apparently they they do vary quite a lot, but a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff that was kind of omitted from the film uh, was like narration and voiceovers uh, because. Apparently, for each hour of the film, he spent a thousand hours writing, which is kind of weird when you think that the first, like, 20 minutes or whatever has no dialogue, and it's very, like, dependent on its visuals. But uh, I think that something that kind of doesn't become that clear in the film, but it's something that he originally intended, was that I think the satellites are meant to be, like, nuclear deterrence all from different countries so that there's quite a bit of it um i know that like one of the interpretations is that it's kind of meant to be almost propaganda to kind of glorify space travel um so there's kind of a few undertones about american space race but it doesn't really come through that clearly hmm Yeah, but, anyway. so, but I think that's one of the first match cuts to exist, from what I know, of the kind of two similar objects, the cut between them, which now now you can probably you'll see a, a lot more often and is done um, with a bit more polish. But it was I think it was pretty revolutionary at the time. Mm. Yeah. It's kind of so, the standard yeah. now. You see it in virtually like every movie at least once. Yeah, but the so this next section, I think, you have the thing of the monolith, but I think it's mainly to set up kind of uh, the age of technology that the next section is set in, and also, I I think it's just kind of. Kubrick just wants to look at like the beauty of some of of the space age, you know, with the like huge orchestral scores of as a spaceship like slowly docks um, at the station and things like that. That kind of score and used where it's almost like the spaceships are doing a kind of dance. Um, so there's a lot of long sequences of that to kind of bring out the beauty in it, I suppose. Yeah. And I, th- I thought it was quite some, uh, interesting that the... I thought in this sequence, a lot of kind of the internal shots and the colours were quite sort of similar to some of his other films. Like, they reminded me quite a bit of A Clockwork Orange, like the colour palette in the second sequence. and Yeah. Um... I think, and also I think that like, uh, it did a quite, quite interesting like ways of mirroring the, like having symmetrical, sort of cinematography in those sequences to kind of, uh, kind of guide your where you're looking and like the different characters that are important in it, which, uh. Well, I'd, I'd, I'm sure we'll come on to this later on, but what did you actually think of the characters in this or, like, you know, like, the acting? Because I know a lot of people have criticised it for being quite stale, but I think that um, what he's able to do is he kind of has that balance between the astronauts who are quite, um, I guess, emotionless, but I think they've kind of been conditioned to behave like that and I think that juxtaposed nicely with the fact that you have this almost sentient artificial intelligence in HAL which uh, I think is probably meant to be more kind of humanoid and show more emotions than the actual human characters ironically yeah Mm, I I didn't have a problem with any of the characters I think it kind of interestingly showed the manipulation of uh, 
What what is the main guy in the second section who kind of talks about the monolith and lies to those scientists uh, uh, in the beginning? Floyd, like the... I don't know. His, I can't remember his first name. Yeah, it's hey, Floyd. Is he like head of? What's he head of? Head of I don't sp- know. Head of space. He's he's like that. Yeah, he's he's in charge of space. Um, yeah. But it kind of shows his manipulative nature. Well, and just the politics that go into discovery. Like, they kind of have to hide the monolith, which I guess is that fear of the unknown again, uh, and tell everyone that it's actually the moon base is, like, cut off contact because of uh, a disease outbreak. Hmm. I can, I, um, I can kind of see where he's, he'd be coming from, though, because, like, the impact that discovering what's essentially indirect proof of alien life, the the impact that could have on the world would be, like, really just monumental, and you couldn't really predict how people were going to react, so I, I didn't necessarily see him as, like, a, ba- a bad character. No. And you got to see some of his family as well. Yeah. They do, like... Uh, they do a video call. They have a quick Zoom chat. That's actually Kubrick's daughter. Was it? Yeah. Crazy. Damn. I can't believe I the actor was nonsing on Kubrick's daughter. <laughs> um, yeah. It kind of... This section also shows off a lot of the just technology they have, I, I guess. Like... One thing that I thought aged badly was just, or it's like the only thing that aged badly is the lack of security <coughs> at the spaceport. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I was going to say technology-wise. The voice it's... recognition. and Oh, yeah, when when he went on like the, the space shuttle, which was, oh, and also Pan American, which doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. But that it had like the screens in the seats where you watch films, yeah. which are on planes now. I was kind I of, I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, and they did. It's got really good effects in this section of like the, um, where there's zero gravity. That looks cool. I think uh, so. Spinning corridors are used because some of the, it's like the air hostesses have grip shoes, so they kind of walk up the side of walls. Yeah, and with the zero gravity stuff. Apparently, they actually filmed it like so. <laughs> so the the actors were suspended on wires, so they'd be hanging down. So effectively, it would look like the the wall is the floor. So they film it from underneath. So that way, the wires are hidden, and also when they move around, it looks a lot more weightless because obviously sideways there isn't any gravity acting on them. Yeah. So, because I was wondering, it was like if they had wires, because I was only thinking where they'd still be stood on the floor. So I was like, how does it make it look like they're moving weightless? But because they're kind of sideways, that makes more sense. Um, it's a weird backstory about the air hostess, the main one, because apparently when she was auditioning for the part, um, she'd had like loads of painkillers because she had toothache, so she was kind of stumbling whilst walking. And then that's ultimately what Stanley Kubrick wanted her to do in the actual take. So that's kind of why she walks in that weird way. But I think like that scene where she walks round the like upside down. I I don't know. Mm. It it just feels like they're such iconic moments, and uh, you can definitely see a lot of maybe not that specific moment, but you can definitely see a lot of these like sets and models and the way that he sort of filmed stuff having a great impact on a lot of sort of the sci-fi and just all films in general, I guess, that came later. Mm. A lot of this, like, spaceship sequences of, like, the the docking and things seemed like... It it was... you, You could clearly see how... what a huge effect that had on... Uh, like sci-fi films, 
because it's not like that sort of um the, the sort of like the idea of like spaceships uh doing like that sort of thing wasn't there but it was like you could it was so reminiscent of stuff like star wars and uh a lot of other things that came after it you could just really see the impact it had yeah because some of the th things that you are kind of seen as cliche now i guess like the i think a lot of the shots of um like the longer shots of kind of the the spaceships docking and things are kind of uh emphasizing like the i don't think this was really one of the most prevalent themes maybe but i think that it's kind of intrinsic with the idea of space exploration and kind of what comes with that is almost like the insignificance of man in the grand scheme of things but i that's something that you kind of shows up a lot in sci-fi now but this kind of was one of the things that began that so you can't i don't think you can really call it cliche if it's sort of creating the trope yeah i was that's kind of the same thing i had with like when i watched halloween for the first time um there was obviously a lot of stuff there that uh, seems cliche now, but was actually the thing that started the cliche, the thing that everyone copied and therefore the cliche was born. Yeah. Um, so if you like view it with those that with that lens, then you really appreciate it. Although if you're just watching it without that knowledge beforehand, you just you, you might not enjoy it as much. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the final section then? I do. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so what do they do? They're going to Jupiter. Um, you kind of see them have a, a call with, uh, it's like some, yeah, it's a news thing. Um, and that, I think that it does a really good way of kind of setting up the, the idea that you know that HAL 9000 is going to do something where obviously like the iconic shots of the close-up on that just the camera with the red dot in the middle you just get the feeling that something's wrong yeah. and they make sure that you pay attention to the fact that there's the three in the pods completely controlled by HAL 9000 um, so it just really good at setting loads of stuff up and all the effects in this uh, section again are really good, like with the pods going outside to fix things, um, and the bit where uh, David Bowman like uses the explosive bolts to blast himself into the airlock. That is all really impressive for 1968. Um, there, there were points I just completely forgot it was a 60s film, like. Yeah. yeah, the it it's it's aged really well. Like that, like that uh, shot of him getting into the airlock. That's that seemed like it could have been done a lot more recently. Sorry to derail yeah. you. I, it wasn't derailed. <laughs> um, I think this one has the more interesting look at like actual characters because you know, like how. The reason that he does kill the astronauts is because he could tell that um, the other two weren't like as sure about the mission, and how nine thousand felt like it it had to make sure the mission was a success, and if they were going to interfere, then you'd have to get rid of them. Um, and it, it actually didn't. It start pleading with David as he was like deactivating all the memory stuff yeah that, yeah that was singing the song yeah I was like, Ooh. <laughs> it was um quite depressing i guess <laughs> yeah but it, it did really well at stuff like that and even though it's kind of slow it, it manages to pull off a kind of the big blockbuster thing of when 
Paul is on fixing the antenna and then it kind of the camera pans down under the space pod and then you see the HAL 9000 unit on it and it kind of rapidly zooms in. It's yeah. a kind of like, oh no, <laughs> moment. Uh, uh, so uh, that bit's great. And the, As I was saying, I think they do a great job of like making HAL seem human uh, and the fact that it sort of all begins with him actually making an error and then you have that scene where they go inside the pod and they're, they're talking and then uh obviously you see from hal's perspective he's able to like read their lips um but i think that something else that's really as well as the visuals in this sequence i think that the sound design was really good as well you have a lot of those yeah moments where you just hear that breathing and i think it really helps to build the tension uh and it's something that it, it does quite a lot towards the second half of the film and i think that that kind of the sound mixing was another really important aspect of the film that isn't something that I necessarily notice a lot of the time, but I think in a film like this, uh, it definitely helped to kind of enhance the experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because there wasn't a lot of music in this bit before the Jupiter and Beyond section. Yeah. It. It's very quiet and just like the beeping noises of the computers as well as the breathing and stuff like that that kind of really enhances the claustrophobia of this section. Yeah. I saw this um, quite interesting thing about uh, a technique that I don't know if he if it's probably consciously used, but uh, it's called the cooler shot effect where you like show um well it was originally you show the same picture of a person but immediately before or after that you show something else and although you have the same picture of the person you're kind of able to attribute a different reaction or emotion each time which i think is something that's really effectively done with hal because obviously it's always that same shot of the of the like the red dot but you're able to always sort of infer the well i guess emotions that he's experiencing which um as i was saying before i think is especially impactful when you sort of pair that with the like the reaction well i guess like bowman's character he never really seems to react that much like even in the final sequence he always seems to be kind of emotionless, but I I do think that that was definitely intentional. Like I I don't think that he can say that was kind of bad acting on his part. I think that was something that it was yeah, kind of just I feel kind of stunned. Like, I feel like it, being an astronaut is one of the most dangerous jobs you can possibly have. So if you're going to be an astronaut, you kind of need to not freak out at stuff. So yeah. I, I I agree. I don't really think that was an issue with acting. I think that was just how the character be. Yeah. Um. Oh, let's just start talking about the the last bit. Uh, so he gets to the Jupiter, and then there's kind of like there's quite a lot of monoliths circling around, and then he seems to go through. It's called a Stargate, and then it's just an extended sequence where the music really helps it here. It's kind of like unsettling, like vocal parts that are, is it? <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> the whole time. That's exactly what it's like. It yeah. is. You've encapsulated um, it. And <laughs> why even watch the film when you've got that? <laughs> and it's just, you've got like all the colors that like go past and then it's got, uh, altered shots of like landscapes and weird like liquid type stuff and constantly going back to David Bowman's face as he goes through this Stargate and it's I think it's long it's quite long not because cause it's not really about like the plot it's not making you want to go like oh what's going to be then it's just kind of like you're experiencing it there with David and kind of the like you're overwhelmed by it as well um yeah 
you it's I, I, it's just something you kind of have to watch and uh experience but yeah. it's just i don't know it's pretty crazy <laughs> uh and then you kind of it seems like alien spaceships appear at one point there's a line of them just for a few seconds mm. i don't even remember they they're like diamond shaped um and then he arrives at like this is it a house <laughs> what would yeah. you say it is and well it's... just quickly about that sequence i think that uh it's so like mesmerizing and kind yeah. of something that he is so unique to this film but i think because when the first when the film first came out i think quite a few of the contemporary critics were quite uh dismissive of it and kind of called it a bit boring i guess but uh which i don't agree with because I, th- I think it always apart from maybe the middle section i'd say that was the bit where i was the least engaged but um i think that uh, the first part and then the part as soon as you like they go to the jupiter mission i think that's all really interesting and the this sequence uh is i mean it's basically just like a, an acid trip uh, mm-hmm. i think that it did kind of um, start to become associated with sort of drug use, maybe this part, but uh, I think it's just a very, like, maybe it goes on a little bit too long, but I think it's, it always keeps you engaged. Yeah, with just kind of, I think it really helps having into, into cut with it, with the just really close ups of David's, like, eyeball. And his yeah. pupil, like, well, every time he blinks, it changes color. So you kind of also get to see him taking it all in. Um, that that's really cool as well. Uh, but yeah, then he get he arrives in this kind of house thing, and it's a thing of. It seems where he he'll look at someone, and it seems to be an older version of himself, and then we end up moving to that perspective. And then they look at an, an even older version, and then it keeps going. Um, there's one of them is like eating at a table, and then kind of knocks a glass off of it, which then shatters. Which there's a close there's a close up shot of, which probably means something, but I don't know what. <laughs> Does anyone know? No. Either uh, of you two have an idea. I mean, let's just let's just say no. No, <laughs> not really. I- I think it is sort of deliberately ambiguous, and I've seen this interpretation that it the monolith is meant to represent the TV or the cinema screen, and uh, this is like him breaking out of it or something, and like to do with propaganda, which I don't really think holds up, but uh, I think it's just more that kind of fascination and like overwhelming sense of the unknown and like uh i don't really know to be honest but it is it's definitely a very interesting sequence like, i don't mm. i don't think kubrick was necessarily wanting you to have all the answers it was more about <clears throat> just sort of experiencing it i mean i i, I, I really I, liked the i'll go on. uh i mean after i w- watched the ending my first thought was just what the hell so i dived straight into the wikipedia page and um so there was an interview with Kubrick and he was he basically said that um he I mean he obviously did that thing where like he doesn't want you to have the answers he wants you to like form your own perspectives and stuff but he did also say that about the sequence um in that like house place uh that that was sort of meant to be um when he when he went into the Stargate, these like godlike alien life forms sort of put him in a, a human zoo where they can kind of like uh monitor him and uh study him. And the idea of like because if you notice, like there was a lot of like really really pretty furniture in there and stuff, but it just seemed weird and odd. And it didn't look particularly like comfortable, and that and that could be likened to like how 
humans when they're putting animals in zoos like the uh the environment we create isn't the same as like the natural environment so i don't, I don't mm. know if that if that was just something he did or whether he was actually trying to make a statement on zoos or something but <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean that's I, interesting because i think the whole idea of us trying to kind of conquer and explain the inexplicable in terms of space travel and the possibility <laughs> of aliens or other life i think that it's a nice contrast to that having sort of the reciprocal at least i guess it's the implication as you're saying of sort of humans being trapped in this environment of being analyzed and studied but uh because i know apparently cubic was considering including some sort of alien life in this sequence but i think and when they first showed like the other bowman i i wasn't quite sure whether that's sort of the road he'd be taking but i think it is more uh impactful that he kind of just leaves it open-ended and uh kind of has those hints at supernatural things with the monolith and stuff but never explicitly shows it i um find it interesting that ben said like what the hell and then immediately looked up the ending Whereas I said what the hell and then didn't want to look it up. I don't know if that makes sense, but I kind of preferred it. Preferred not fully knowing and just having my own kind of idea on it. Or just feelings in general, like, I don't know. Whereas I, I just saw it as like his whole life being displayed in front of him. And then ingesting the thing at the end where he kind of is on his deathbed and reaching out to the monolith and then... It kind of like transforms to the star child as some kind of rebirth or ascension. And then it showed it as like maybe a hope of some kind of hope of a new life or maybe like utopia for Earth. I just yeah. thought it was really cool. I, I, I need to figure of... out how they did that because apparently there was zero CGI, there was zero computer effects. Yeah, it so looked like it was CGI. Star child? So. I'm pretty sure the Star Child was a model. Was... Yeah, it must be a model. It looked quite animated, though. I mean... It, no, it's only its eye moved, I think, which, uh, it like, they were just able to do that with a model. But uh, apparently, uh, there's, some people interpret that final scene as it meant to be shown the end of the world and the Star Child's kind of looking over it after destroying it, which I don't really think holds up but as tom was saying about like not necessarily wanting answers or closure on it i guess that's uh i think in some ways the characters in this and i know i've said that a lot but like their lack of reaction is uh kind of mirrors the audience and the fact that we like dave at the end is just searching out for something to explain what's happening and i think that's sort of what the audience is doing and with that interpretation that the monolith is meant to represent the cinema screen then you're sort of looking for like behind the, the screen to try and understand what's happened but i think at the end of the day it's that's not really the point mm. Mm. Yeah, I just yeah, I just cool. reached out to the Wikipedia page because I'm too tired to critically think about my own opinion. Give I mean, me, I kind of did the same. So. Give me, give me the answers now, right now. Oh, it's made from fiberglass, the Star Child, and was given a mechanism for eyes. Oh, the fiberglass kind of explains it. Yeah, when I said it was like animated, I, f I, th I meant like CGI. So. I could see, yeah. I could see how that would create a similar effect. Yeah, uh, and it's actually a prop that survived from the film. So, oh, is it like on display? You anywhere? can find it. Uh, yeah, I think it is. Apparently, Kubrick tried to destroy most of the props and models after filming, <laughs> so no one else could use them. But a few of them have been found and stuff. And also, apparently, the the thing the monolith was originally meant to be uh kind of like a pyramid, pyramid shape yeah. yeah which 
but he didn't have enough money or something. Or the production company was like, "It'll take too long. Please just make it flat." So he did, but it was it was like transparent glass because the pyramid was supposed to be glass, and he didn't like the way it looked. And then I think one of the prop designers suggested matte black. So there you go. The iconic monolith is because they didn't have enough money. Yeah. Didn't have enough mono monolith. Oh. Amazing. Well, shall we wrap it up and give our ratings? Give it, we actually haven't run out of things to say this time. Well, I know. Let's go. Shall I go I'm first? Scared. Oh, I yeah. forgot how awful the, <laughs> the website is and how it hasn't been updated. All right, I'm. I've got a couple of hours. I'm gonna like send you that template for how to do it today, Ollie. All right. Thanks. Uh. I'm going to... I've only seen a couple of other Kubrick films, and they're also, like, some of my favourite films. Uh, and I'd say this is probably in my top five or top three. Um, just because of how thought-provoking it is, and yet how sort of minimalistic it is, and how impactful, like, the, the sound design is, the cinematography, uh, the like the images and the music and stuff. So I'm going to give this a 9.1. Oh, is that our first nine? Damn. I think it is, yeah. Um. Well, I like... I remember watching this and then I was just so blown away that I can kind of excuse all, like, any <laughs> problems with the effects and stuff and like it holds up so well and it's so impactful and the ending is still like out of this world and it's just a truly crazy experience and I think it might be my favourite film of all time so I'm just gonna I'm gonna give it a 10 perfect 10 oh my god I know damn alright so we've got a 9.1 <laughs> and a 10 5 is that what you're gonna give <laughs> I'm gonna give it a minus 10 <laughs> That still uh, gives it a pretty good rating of 9.1. <laughs> no, that's not how that's it works. Not how it works. Wait. <laughs> no, 9.1 <laughs> divided by 3. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it a... Um, whatever it needs to get it to a perfect zero. On average. <laughs> no! Oh, um, okay, well, as you've said, I think it, it's aged incredibly. Um, it's... The special effects are so much better than stuff even in like the the seventies and the eighties, and like I guess that has partially to do with budget, but also I guess like the the thought and uh like everything that just went into it. I'm gonna give it a nine, and I'm trying to work out the point. Oh, you know what? I think my rating is a little bit harsh, so I'm gonna up it to a nine point five. There we go. <laughs> I'm so, reluctant to give go, it a then. 10 what are you gonna do? because what if I like a film more than it? Am I going to have to go into the 10.1? <laughs> and then that completely invalidates the whole rating system. Un unacceptable. I'm going to give it a 9. Point... <sighs> I'm going to go 9.5 because I feel like if I'm too specific up on like a range where we've got no other films then when we start yeah. placing films around it it'll just be like oh why is this a 9 point uh what 9.7 it'll be why is it wow. oh. that is miles above the second <coughs> be like wow why is this a 9.642 when like this is better I don't know but damn, we have. Guys, we did it. We did something other than a seven for one. We've officially knocked Blade Runner out of first place. <laughs> we have. Well, Kubrick has, I guess. And well done, Kubrick. Oh, see, I kind of see that now because, like, it's weird comparing it to individual films on this list, but like, I did 
sort of I didn't necessarily enjoy it more than Blade Runner, but I I feel like I appreciated its like just it. I appreciated it more. So that mm. is cool. Right, before Tom speeds off with his recommendation, <laughs> we have a submission spotlight. I wonder who submitted it. Oh it's us. We're that desperate. <laughs> We're submitting our own media. And so we, all three members of us, are in a band called Mood Organ. And we released a single. So check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, next. I don't know what it's called. No. It is called it is called Brain Tourist. It's a weird like indie alternative rock, I guess, infused with like prog and blues and I don't know what the hell it is. No one seems to know what the hell the genre is. <laughs> um it's in a awful time signature it's got it, it, it's heckin 5-4 for 7 bars and then 6-4 for 1 bar thanks Tom yeah and it's You're welcome. the lyrics are based on a, a conversation I had with the with the, the singer of um at a 3am and both of us were completely sleep deprived so there's a bit of wacky stuff in there and yeah. we're releasing like an EP film. Yeah. In fact, I'll say that this is directly comparable to 2001 and a Space Odyssey. Yeah. Releasing an EP called Slight Seeing on July the 23rd. If that is something you're interested in, there'll be a link in the description. If it's not something you're interested in, then absolutely fair enough. You're always welcome here on the podcast, even though we'll hate you. Can I just quickly say something we didn't mention about 2001? That uh, it, apparently it has a sequel called 2010, the year we made contact. Oh, yeah, yeah I saw I, that. It seems to have but split it... audiences where some people say it's really good sci fi, and some people say that it explains a, a lot more of what's going on than 2001. So I don't know. It was but by I, a different director as well. No, but people like don't expect. 2001 <laughs> you know it's a different film yeah because it's still based on the arthur c clark novel but yeah nice i might watch it so to be interesting to read the novel or not i think so apparently it's got different stories into the film because it was more like supposed to be in conjunction with rather than the book is the film yeah, yeah. how would you write like the the sequence with all the lights and stuff like that. No idea. Like, <laughs> David red, Bowman yellow, is on blue, drugs. Blink. <laughs> Mesmerising effect. Mesmerising effect. Cheeky. Do you have any recommendations, Tom? Um, I can't remember if I said it, but uh, Super Size Me, I watched that, which is a documentary, very enjoyable, about where someone eats McDonald's for every meal for a month to see what happens. So watch that. <coughs> Is that it? Yeah. Well, oh. well, because anything else I watched, I didn't like as much. Ooh. Damn. Also, I've been quite busy. Okay, I might have one. Nice. Depends on I can because it's been a while since our last episode. I can't remember if I recommended it. I don't think I did. Did I recommend the forty four hundred? No, no. Oh, well, it is cool. It is a a TV series. Uh, that was ran from like two thousand five to two thousand seven. It's basically around the premise that like over time, like four thousand four hundred people disappeared just randomly um, and no one knows where they went and then one day they just randomly appear in the lake at the ball of light and society's like whoa what the hell is this how do we deal with this uh, and it turns out that they all have like 
special abilities, like I guess superpowers, and then uh, so it starts off with a kind of like episodic approach, kind of like looking at a different um, returnee each time, uh, but over the course of the series it shifts more to like the overarching story um which is without going into too much detail is sort of about like why they had their abilities and what that means from for uh the rest of the society because it turns out like the future kidnapped them and returned them with abilities to prevent an apocalypse but then like different people have different ideas about what the apocalypse is so a lot of um, cool stuff there. It's uh, I mean, I mean, like it gets a bit like corny and cheesy at times. Uh, it's not like the best show I've ever watched, but it's it's enjoyable and I like the the tone of it. Um, the it it sort of tries to have that same like dark tone that the early like X Files stuff had. Um, which makes sense because it was shot in similar locations in Canada so I don't know why Canada is the location of choice for sci-fi sci-fi series that wouldn't have like a dark grainy aesthetic but it is so go watch that it is on not on the UK Netflix but it is on American Netflix and that's why if you go into our description and use our affiliate code for NordVPN which we don't have, oh. unfortunately. Oh. But if you are listening NordVPN and want to sponsor us, then get yeah. in contact. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I have a couple of recommendations. Um, the first one is a book called The Wall. Damn. Uh, and it's actually quite a recent book. I think it's from 2019. Uh, but it's, it's based on it's like a dystopian one where it's kind of a similar concept to Game of Thrones where there's a big there's a big been a big wall erected basically that keeps out the others um, and it tells the story of this person who everybody in this new society has to uh, do like two years compulsory service on the wall Um to keep the others out and apparently uh so what happens is um he has to serve on the wall and uh so the first part of it is kind of based around him dealing with like the harsh circumstances and the cold uh by tom uh and um Basically, what they do is they have two weeks on the wall and two weeks off the wall, one of which you kind of do your own thing, and one of them is, uh, like, training for the wall, which they kind of find enjoyable because it's sort of escapism, even though it's the exact same thing. Uh, and it's quite an interesting concept that the generation of, like... So the, the protagonist is about 18, and his parents... Uh, and that sort of generation have got like this immense feeling of kind of guilt for this thing that's never really explicitly explained, but it's just labeled as the change. Uh, and um, so there's been this big problem with like people not having children because they don't kind of want to bring them up in this society, even though it's it's never really clear what that involves. Uh, so one of the only ways to get off the wall is to become a breeder and have a child, um, which the main character goes on to do. That's not really a spoiler, but uh, so um, it's quite interesting because, so as I was saying, he has to keep out the others, and the captain is actually another. So, uh, and if you fail to keep out the others, then you get put out to sea beyond the wall. So, um, that's basically the the premise of it, and uh, it's kind of split into three parts. So I won't give away what happens in each of those, but uh, I think it's 
it's quite an interesting take on dystopian genre because it doesn't really it's never really clear whether uh this situation is kind of just a method of control by authority i guess because if the others do come over the wall they don't actually survive that long they either die because they don't have these chips that are kind of essential to live or they become help and they uh basically look after the more wealthy people in this society so it's quite interesting kind of seeing that disparity between the the intentions of like the authority and the people in power and then just these regular people who are having to do the service on the wall so that's my first one and then the second one is a netflix show um it's called lupin and it's i think it's quite popular at the moment because the second season just come out and both the first two seasons have actually both come out this year and uh so it's based around a french series of books uh where the looping character i think is kind of the equivalent of kind of a moriarty figure in sherlock he's like this i'm not really sure if evil genius would be the right word but he's like called the gentleman burglar so in the show it's takes it kind of subverts that a bit because the main character isn't actually looping he's just somebody that was brought up really enjoying the books um so he kind of takes on that identity uh and it's revealed that as a child his father worked for this wealthy man and he was wrongly accused of stealing this necklace so he's basically trying to seek justice on that and um trying to kind of expose a lot of the underlying corruption surrounding this case that uh as the series goes on you kind of get to understand more about the the char- the like the wealthy person that framed this but also like the police officer that uh was kind of bribed um the this other journalist who's trying to uh also expose um his kind of corruption and embezzlement and stuff uh and i, I really like it because the the first the what the events of the first episodes you still dealing with the ramifications of that in the like the 10th episode so i think it does have a really good structure overall but um it's told in quite an interesting way where uh, quite a lot of the time it's quite similar to the sherlock show that at sort of the end of the episode it will go back and um kind of reveal how he did something so i think it's a, a good take on that like the opposite of sherlock but it's it's quite an interesting idea and it's got some good writing and uh some good actors um so yeah watch Prove well oh uh what are we doing next week uh well i mean i think we said we were going to do american graffiti for this episode but then we didn't so yeah <laughs> we might as well do that next time all right tune in next week for american graffiti well hopefully next week yeah. we haven't been historically very good at keeping up uh consistent week by week episodes but um no hopefully it will be next week and hopefully we haven't lost all our <laughs> listeners although i wouldn't be surprised if we did given the way that they fluctuate last <laughs> the last two episodes haven't done that well on YouTube at least but uh-huh. we have hope we have hope that one day Lewis Gawthorn will return and he will he will bring all of the new uh, podcast listeners with him and will become famous sign up to our new fans <laughs> We'll have a Patreon, and they'll all be subscribing to the, uh, to the to the top tier, which gives you access to the OnlyFans. Get our merch. Or at see your merch. 
Speaking of which. Speaking of which. Right, I'll see you. Alright, see ya. Yeah, that's it.